0: So if you'll take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Matthew chapter 13, we're not going to read the text just yet, but that's the text that we're going to be looking at in just a few minutes. Some years ago on a trip to the Holy Land, I um, did an extension trip. This past trip, those of you who went with me to the Holy Land, we went down to Jordan, of course, went to Mount Nebo, I went down to the ancient city of Petra, and uh, on every different Holy Land trip, we do something which is a slight variation, and on one of my trips, we went down to the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, we went down to where the children of Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and one of the places that we visited out there in the wilderness. And by the way, let me just say, I, I gained a whole new respect for the Israelites. Uh, I used to read through the Scripture and through the book of Exodus and think to myself, what a complaining, contentious, difficult people, until I spent a week on the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, those of you who, of course, went down to Jordan, you know you get a little taste of that. It is a barren, desolate place. And that's where we were. We were now into the desert for a week, and we stayed at St. Catherine's Monastery, which is at the foot of Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb. It's the place where Moses encountered the Lord in the burning bush, and it was the place where he received the Ten Commandments. And the plan in the morning was that we were going to get up, When I say the morning, I mean about 2 a.m., and we were going to take a camel ride two-thirds of the way up the mountain, and then we were going to hike the rest of the way to the top of the mountain to be there when the sun came up. And who knows, maybe Moses would meet us at the top. Well, that was the plan. (laughs) Well, uh, we stayed at St. Catherine's Monastery, and it was one of the most fascinating places I've ever been. Uh, St. Catherine's was built by the Desert Fathers. It was out there in the middle of nowhere. It's where the monks went to commune with God and to get away from the world. And St. Catherine's is unique in that it has ancient treasures of the Church. In fact, it has the largest collection of ancient Christian manuscripts outside the Vatican. And it's out here in the middle of the desert and they've got all kinds of treasures and things. Uh, Even St. Catherine's finger is there under a glass case somewhere. (laughs) If you're into that sort of thing, I'm not particularly, but there it was. And it was just filled with treasures. But there is one item there uh, that is considered to be their most valuable artifact. And it's the one that really captured my attention. It is the icon that you see on the screen. The icon is entitled Christ Pantocrator, Christ Pantocrator. And it depicts Jesus seated, giving a blessing, and holding a book in his hand. And Christ Pantocrator means Christ the teacher. And that captivated me. It captivated me because, as you know, I love to teach. I enjoy teaching. It's one of my gifts, and I I really enjoy it. But it also fascinated me because if you think about Jesus and all of the titles that you find for the Lord in the New Testament, and, and depending upon who's counting in the New Testament, there are over 50 different names and titles that are ascribed to Jesus. Teacher is not the one we generally think of first, is it? When we think of Jesus, we think of Savior. Jesus is described as the King. He's described as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the long-promised, anticipated Redeemer. He's described as the great prophet, the long-awaited prophet, the one who speaks on behalf of God. But actually, if you read through the New Testament, it becomes very clear that Jesus was known, especially to the people of His day, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily as a teacher. Jesus was recognized as a teacher. In Mark chapter 10, you have the story of the rich young ruler. You know the story. This man who has great wealth, and he comes up to Jesus, and he asks a question. What's the question? Anybody remember? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But how does he address Jesus? He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The reason he's coming to Jesus of all people and asking that question is because he recognizes that Jesus is one who speaks with authority. Jesus is a great teacher. Uh, The same thing is true with the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the member of the Sanhedrin who came under the cover of darkness and he came because he had seen in Jesus something that for all of his learning, for all of his status, for all of his position, he simply did not have. Jesus had serenity. He had that peace which passed human understanding. And so in spite of his position, he came under the cover of darkness. And when he saw Jesus, what was the first thing out of his mouth? He said, we know. What do we know? We know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. He recognized Jesus as a teacher, as someone who again spoke with authority who spoke not as the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 23 and in John chapter 13, Jesus refers to himself as a teacher. He tells his disciples that they have no father. They are to call no one father because they only have one father, and that is God in heaven. And they are to call no man teacher because they have one teacher and one instructor. And who's that one teacher and instructor? He said, I am that teacher and instructor. And on the last night that he spent with them, at the Last Supper, we're told that one of the things that he did after they shared that common meal was that Jesus got down on his hands and his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And then when he had finished, he said, Now I have set you an example. If I, your teacher, have done this for you, you ought to go and do likewise. So I love that icon because it reminds us that while Jesus was many things to many people over the course of His ministry, He was, and we must never forget this, in many respects, above all else, a great teacher. And even Jesus regarded Himself as having primarily a teaching and preaching ministry. In the very first chapter of Mark's Gospel, the story is told about Jesus was at Capernaum. Uh, He was there and He had taught in the synagogue, a teacher again. And he'd gone out and he had healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Those of you who were there, you've seen Peter's house and that flying saucer church that sort of sits down on top of it. You were right there at the very spot where people still come thousands of years later just to catch a glimpse perhaps of Jesus' healing power. And he healed Peter's mother-in-law and we're told that great crowds gathered at the door. They too wanted to be healed. And we're told that when Nighttime came, the crowds were sent away, but in the morning, those who had not been touched by Jesus came back, and they were knocking on the door. The disciples went to find Jesus, and He was nowhere to be found. Suddenly, somebody got the bright idea that He was probably out praying. And everybody concluded that this was no time for prayer. <laughs> and so what did they do? They went out, and they sought Jesus out. He was in a lonely place. And Peter came up to Him, and he said, everybody is looking for you. What was Jesus' response? He said, good. Let us go on to the next town that I may preach slash teach there also, for that is why I came out. Of course, we recognize that Jesus is, most importantly, our Savior. But did you ever notice that over the course of his earthly ministry, when Jesus would do some great miracle, whether it was raising Lazarus' daughter from the dead or cleansing somebody of leprosy, that he would oftentimes instruct people sternly not to talk about it. Did you ever notice that? Now Let me ask you a question. How many of you could keep a secret like that if you saw somebody raised from the dead? (laughs) And they couldn't either. They told everybody about it. But he instructed them not to do that. Why? two reasons one because his time to be revealed as the Savior as the Messiah had not yet come they had their own ideas about what the Savior was going to do liberate them politically or militarily drive out the Romans reestablish the Davidic dynasty whatever but he knew that he had not come to be that kind of a king who is lifted up on a throne but a king who is lifted up upon a tree and they didn't understand that yet and the second reason why he told everybody that they were to be quiet about these great miracles was because he recognized they would latch on to the miracle as though that was as though that is what really mattered and it wasn't the miracle that mattered it was the man the man and his message so i want you to understand jesus was many things but jesus was a teacher He was a teacher. And I would go so far as to say that without teaching and without solid preaching, whatever you may have in a church, doesn't matter what else you have, if you do not have solid teaching and preaching, the people will perish. They will languish. And there will be a famine in the land, a famine for the word of the Lord. And that is what makes a church, that's what makes a Christian strong. So Jesus was a teacher. And He wasn't just a teacher. Jesus was a great teacher. In Mark chapter 12, we're told that when the Lord went into Solomon's colonnade and began to teach the people, we're told that they listened with delight. How many of you remember going to college and having wretched professors? Anybody have a terrible professor in college? Oh, every now and then I'd get a night class. After you've just had a heavy meal and you go off to class from six to 9 Only met once a week, because you couldn't tolerate any more than that. And you'd get the professor, you didn't want to be there, and he didn't want to be there. And you would walk home from class, and your leg would be sore. You know why? Because you were taking your pencil and jamming it into your thigh in order to stay awake. (laughs) That's what you're trying to do. We've all had professors and teachers like that. But on the other hand, we've also had teachers and professors who are what? A delight to listen to. They're engaging. They're exciting. Let me tell you something. Many of the modern depictions that we have of Jesus in artwork are completely inaccurate. Not only because we make him look like a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and he wasn't, obviously. He was Jewish. He was from the Middle East. But we also get this picture of Jesus as sort of weak and effeminate, and we forget the fact that he grew up working in a carpenter's shop. That he traveled hundreds of miles and they didn't travel by boat or by car or by train or by airplane. They traveled by foot. Jesus would have been muscular. And oftentimes when we see images of Jesus teaching the crowds, it's sort of Jesus sort of sitting there, everybody sort of lounging about, and the Lord is just standing there in some sort of sanctimonious pose. Jesus was an engaging teacher. 5,000 people and crowds in excess of 5,000 people did not come to listen to somebody who was dry as dust. Jesus must have been extremely engaging in the way that he spoke and in the way that he taught. And one of the reasons was because he used a very engaging method. Jesus understood that there are those times when a picture is worth a thousand words. He understood that. For some of you, some architects out there in the crowd, I see them out there, somebody can hand you a set of blueprints and you can understand completely what the end product is going to look like. But for some of us, we look at those blueprints and, yeah, we recognize that's a door and that's a window and that's a staircase, but as to what the finished product is going to look like, we haven't a clue. But build me a model or paint me a picture and then I can begin to understand. Well, Jesus was trying to impart to the crowds great spiritual truths, but he knew that sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. I can describe for you Niagara Falls, but if you have never been there, it is hard to truly grasp the magnificence of it. I mean, I can tell you it's a big waterfall. And if you've seen a waterfall before, you could try to imagine what a big waterfall is looking like. But if I show you that, it's a whole different idea, isn't it? Jesus understood that if you're going to be a great teacher, one of the most important things that you can do is to paint a picture for the crowds. And that's what Jesus did. Word pictures were the Lord's preferred method of teaching. We call them parables. And depending upon who's counting, there are 27 of them total in the New Testament. We are not going to get to all of those. But that's what Jesus was doing in the parables. He was trying to impart deep spiritual truths by painting for the people a magnificent picture, one that would leave an indelible impression on their minds. And in this respect, the parables, perhaps more than any other part of the Scripture, cut deep to the very core of our being and speak to the deepest recesses of our hearts and our souls. And they speak to us today just as profoundly as they did to the people who first heard them. Now, in order to understand the parables, it's important to understand what they are and what they are not, because there can be confusion about what a parable is and indeed what it is designed to do what this word picture is designed to convey first thing you need to understand about a parable is that it is a story that is drawn from real life when Jesus told the parables these stories did not come across to the crowds as though they were fantasy as though they were made up stories they were stories that they would have recognized from their own life from their daily chores from their daily existence story of the prodigal son if you've ever had a contentious difficult rebellious child you can relate to the prodigal son can't you anybody ever had a relative like that you don't have to say it's your own child you know you you know anybody have a neighbor whose child's like that how's that (laughs) we all recognize what a prodigal son is some years ago There was a book that came out written by Franklin Graham called Rebel with a Cause. It was his own autobiography. It was the story of the son of the world's most famous evangelist, the man who has preached to more people than anybody in history. Billy Graham preached to more people than Jesus or the Apostle Paul. And yet his son, for the greater part of his formative years, was nothing less than a hellion. That's the only way to describe him. On one occasion, they were going through, uh, I I remember reading Ruth Bell Graham's biography, and she said on one occasion she was taking the children and they were fighting in the back seat and Franklin was irritating everybody. And she said she couldn't take it anymore. They were going through a drive-through at McDonald's and she told him to get out. And he said, get out what? And she popped the trunk and she said, get in the trunk. (laughs) Now can you imagine doing that today? D.S.S. and everybody else would be here. Those were the days, my friends. We thought they'd never end. (laughs) So she put him in the back and she ordered food for everybody and she drove out and they were going down the road and sister said to mother, she said, Franklin's still in the trunk. (laughs) So she pulled over to the side of the road and she popped the trunk and she went back and she was about to apologize and he said, did you order fries? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, anybody's ever had a child like that? Can relate to the prodigal son or the Good Samaritan. We have Good Samaritan laws in this country, don't we? Where we are obligated, if we are a witness to an accident, to get out and help people. We understand what it means to be a Good Samaritan. This is not something that is foreign to us. We recognize these stories, and the people of Jesus' day recognize them as well. The Pharisee and the tax collector. How many of you have ever known a hypocrite? Look around, in case you're wondering, because the world's filled with them. Tax collectors. Oh, they're the most popular people in the world. April 15th. We recognize hypocrites and tax collectors. Wedding banquets. These are told parables about weddings. We've all been to a wedding banquet. We all know what that looks like. We all know what happens at wedding banquets. Sheep and goats, anybody who grew up on a farm can understand the difference between sheep and goats. So these are simple stories and they are drawn from real life. More often than not, They are agrarian in terms of their context, and that's only because Jesus, of course, grew up in a pre-industrial age. He grew up in an agrarian culture, and so many of his stories are stories drawn from real life, but they are set in an agrarian context, like the parable of the sower, which is the parable that I hope we're going to look at today. So that's what a parable is. Here's what a parable is not. A parable is not a fable. What are fables? Fables are stories that are sometimes designed to teach us a lesson, some sort of moral lesson, but oftentimes they have fantastic elements in them. The most famous um, uh, uh, fables, of course, are Aesop's fables, in which you have things like animals that talk. Now, oftentimes they were people masquerading as animals, but nevertheless there were fantastic elements in Aesop's fables. Parables are not like that. There are no fantastic elements in the parables. Parables are not fables but nor are they allegories. What's an allegory? Well it too is a simple story that is designed to convey a deep truth but it's a story in which nearly every aspect has some sort of symbolic significance. The most famous allegory perhaps is Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't, let me encourage you to do so. It's a classic of literature, and it teaches great truths, but it's an allegory. Everything in the story, everything in the story has some sort of spiritual or biblical significance. Just think about the name of the various characters. The main character in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is Christian. His companion is Hope. They're on a journey to the celestial city, And along the way, they meet a whole series of characters. One of the characters is Miss Busywork, Mr. Worldly Wiseman, Mr. Feeble-Minded, and they battle against Apollyon. Everything in the story, you see, has some sort of spiritual significance. For the most part, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia are allegories. Aslan, the great lion, who's the main character and the hero in the story, represents who? He represents Jesus, the Lion of Judah. And Edmund, in in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, is a young man who betrays his friends and betrays Aslan. And he represents who? Well, he represents Judas, but he represents, really, in many respects, all of us. And in order to free him from the grasp of the nemesis in this story, the white witch who has the whole world under her control, they live in a land where it is always winter but never Christmas. How does Wesley describe our own sin life? He said, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Well, that's a picture you see. Everything in that story has some sort of symbolic significance. But that's not what the parables are like. Parables are not like fables. They're not fantastic elements, and they are not allegories. In fact, if you read the parables, and try to understand everything that Jesus describes in the parables with some sort of symbolic significance, you will miss the forest for the trees. You will immediately get off track. If you want to try to understand what's the significance of the pods that the prodigal son was longing to eat, if you want to understand what kind of pig was actually there in that sty that day, you are immediately off track. You're going to miss the main message. So, what is a parable? What is it meant to do? It's a simple story. It's designed to impart one, maybe two, or a few deep spiritual truths. Simple truths, but not simplistic truths. You know the difference between being simple and being simplistic? Simple means uncluttered. Simplistic means infantile. The parables are many things. What they are not is they are by no means infantile as I said, perhaps more than any other part of scripture, more than the epistles, more than even the Sermon on the Mount, the parables have this way of going right through to the deepest part of our spiritual being and forcing us to take a good hard look at where we are in terms of our relationship with God. And so those are what we're going to look at over the course of the next couple of weeks, the parables of Jesus. Now the parables can be categorized in any number of ways. I've done it this way, somebody else will do it in a slightly different way. But basically I would say there are five types of parables and all of them fall into one of these categories. There are the parables of the kingdom. Jesus painted a word picture drawn from real life that was designed to help people understand the kingdom of God, which was a major theme of his preaching and his teaching. Other parables are parables of salvation. Jesus is trying to paint a picture of what it means to be in a right relationship with God, of what our ultimate destiny hinges on. There are parables of wisdom and folly. Jesus paints pictures in which people do things that have catastrophic results, people who do things that have beneficial results, wisdom and folly. There are some parables that are designed to paint a picture simply of the Christian life what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and a subject of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then there is a category of parables that deal with judgment. We can never escape the fact that Jesus talked at great length about the fact that one day he would come again, not in great humility as he came in Bethlehem, but with power and glory to set what is broken and fallen in this world right. And so there are parables of judgment. Today, we're going to start with a kingdom parable. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. It's called the parable of the sower. And it's a wonderful parable, if for no other reason than the fact that it's one of the few parables that Jesus actually explains. In other words, Jesus oftentimes told parables and hoped that the people would understand the message that he was trying to convey oftentimes they did not but on this particular occasion Jesus tells us exactly what the parable is meant to teach so Matthew chapter 13 let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 23 that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Skip down to verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then. Verse 18, the parable of the sower. So Jesus goes on now to explain it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for that which was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. Parable of the Sower. Uh, If you've ever, incidentally, seen uh, a book published by Simon & Schuster, look on the spine of a Simon & Schuster published book. The image for Simon & Schuster Publishing Company is a sower. It's a sower. Now, as you see in that painting, what a sower did in those days was you didn't go and plow your field and then come along the way we plant flowers today and put a little seed in, and then you'd cover that up. No, you would plow your fields and you went out with a haversack filled with seeds, and you'd reach in and you would throw it out liberally, just as you see the sower doing there. And that's exactly what the image is for Simon and Schuster. sower throwing out the seed liberally. And that's why Jesus said when the seed is thrown out, sometimes it falls on all different kinds of soil. And that's important that you understand that. So the parable of the sower... What's it about? Well, Jesus said it's about the kingdom. In particular, it's about the origin of the kingdom of God. This is a parable about whether or not a person is actually in the kingdom of God, and if they are, how they come to be in the kingdom of God, and not only that, but how you can be certain that you are in the kingdom of God. John Wesley once said, I want to know one thing. He said, I really only want to know one thing in life. I want to know the way to heaven. I want to know how to land safe on that happy shore. How many of you want to know that you're going to heaven when you die? Because sooner or later, folks, we all have an inevitable appointment with the grave. And how many of you want to know for certain if you're going to heaven? Not guesswork here. Well, this parable tells us how we can know for certain. Jesus points out to us that there are three main foci in this parable. There's a sower. Who does the sower represent? Well, Jesus says the sower is the one who proclaims or bears the word of the kingdom. Hear then the parable of the sower, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So the sower is the one who goes out and sows the word of God. In this particular case, it's Jesus, but it's anyone who shares the gospel. Now, in our day and age, Almost everybody has heard the gospel. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've listened to it. But the gospel is more available to us in the 21st century in America than at any other point in history. Bibles are readily available. All you have to do is go into a, what, a hotel room. And there's a Bible there given to us by the Gideons. You can turn on your radio, and there are Christian radio stations. There's a church on practically every corner here in Charleston. It's not that the gospel is not proclaimed. It may be the case that people aren't listening, but you can certainly hear the gospel. So the sower is the person who goes out and he proclaims the gospel. What's the seed? Well, the seed, of course, is the word of God. It's it's the word of the Lord. And what's the soil? Jesus tells us the soil is the human heart. Listen again to verses 18 and 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. In his heart. So in an ultimate sense, what is this parable about? This parable is about the human heart. I can't tell you how important the heart is in God's mind. The heart is the most important thing. And when I say the heart, I don't necessarily mean that organ that pumps the blood throughout the body. You know what I mean by the heart. The seat of our being. Sometimes people like to play coy and they say, oh, I don't know the heart. What does the heart mean? You know what the heart means. You know what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of the heart. Think of Valentine's Day. Your wife wants to know that you love her with all your heart. If you go up and say, honey, I love you with all my mind, she's not going to be all that impressed. She wants to know you love her with all your heart. Well, that's what God wants to know. He wants to know the status, the condition, spiritually speaking, of your heart. In 1 Samuel 16, we have the story of Samuel going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king over Israel to replace Saul. And you remember the story. Jesse had all of his sons come in, and the largest, the most handsome one, came in And when the prophet saw him, he immediately rose and was about to anoint him. But the Lord said, that's not the one. And he had all the sons of Jesse come in. And the Lord kept saying, that is not the one, that is not the one, that is not the one. Until finally, the prophet said, do you not have any more sons? And he said, well, I do have one. But he's a boy, and he's out keeping the sheep. Surely he's not the one. And the prophet said, we will not sit down until he comes. We're told that he came in and he was a young man, handsome with a ruddy complexion. And the Lord said, this is the one. And you read through that text, and what's so wonderful is that the prophet had in his own mind what a king was going to be. But the Lord spoke to him and said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? On the heart. We're impressed with the way things look outwardly, but God is concerned with what is going on on the inside. Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 on one occasion said, It is not what goes into a man that corrupts him. It's what comes out of a man. It's what comes out of his heart that makes a person unclean. In Psalm 51, David, after he's confronted by the prophet Nathan for the terrible deeds that he had done, for his adulterous relationship, and for the fact that he had killed Uriah, he's confronted by the prophet, and the prophet confronts him with his sin. He says, that man is you. And David, we're told, gets down on his knees and he confesses his sins in Psalm 51. And one of the things that he cries out for is that God would create in him a clean heart. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says what? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see the kingdom of God. And every Sunday we begin the liturgy for Holy Communion with a colic for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all what? Hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. I want you to understand, God is not impressed with how things look on the outside. God is concerned with your heart. What is the status of your heart this morning in terms of your relationship with God? That's what matters. That's the key. Well, if you want to know the status of your heart, listen to Jesus' parable he says, a sower went out and sowed seed. And some of that fell along the hard path and the birds came and devoured it. Jesus said sometimes when the gospel is proclaimed the word falls just as the seed falls on the hard path because it's thrown out liberally. Sometimes the seed falls on a hard heart. And we call this the parable of the sower. But it becomes immediately apparent this story is really not about the sower, is it? The focus of this story is not about the sower, and it's not about the power of the seed. It's about the fertile nature of the soil. Nothing wrong with the seed. Nothing wrong with the way that the sower is throwing out the seed. The problem in this first instance with the nature of the soil, which is hard. It's a hard path. It's the path that the animals and the people have been traveling over for a long period of time, and it's been so beaten down, so packed, that when the seed falls on it, it simply glances off. Jesus said there are some people that when the gospel is preached to them, their hearts are so hardened that it simply glances off. It never even stands a chance of taking root. Jesus said, some people's hearts are like that. You say to yourself, well, how does a person's heart get like that? The answer is really simple. Sin. If you work with your hands, and you work with tools in your hands, when you first start off, what happens to your hands? They get blistered, don't they? But over the course of time, those blisters become calluses, and they no longer hurt. You don't feel anything. And Jesus said there are some people's hearts that have become calloused as a result of sin. This is what you find described in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Keep your finger there in Matthew and flip over just a few pages to your right to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, "...for the wrath of God, that is the judgment of God, is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." It's really interesting to note that Paul doesn't say that men are ignorant of the truth. He says men know the truth. The truth of God is written all across creation. It is written on their very hearts. But men, because they do not want to be subject to God, they want to be the masters of their own fate, the captains of their own destiny, they do what? They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And then he goes on to say this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, now that's a very important word, therefore. Because people are suppressing the truth, because they are worshiping created things rather than the Creator. And it doesn't have to be birds and idols the way we imagine them. It could be anything created. Oftentimes idols, my friends, in our lives are not things that are inherently bad. They are things that are oftentimes good. But when we place them as a higher priority than God Himself or the truth of His Word, then they become idols. And when we exchange the truth of God for the lie about these things, what happens? Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up. You want to know what damnation is? Damnation is when God says, all right, have it your own way. We should be saying, have thine own way, O Lord. But oftentimes we say, have my own way. And eventually God says, have it your own way. He gave them up. The language here is the language of a prisoner exchange. He hands them over to the enemy. And what happened? He gave them up to the lust of their heart, to the dishonoring of their bodies. And then you see this downhill spiral. Verse 29, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to do. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval. One translation says they applaud those who practice such things. Let me tell you something, folks. That's a picture of 21st century America. How did we get there? Well, you didn't get there overnight. It's something that happens over the course of time. Like working with tools, over the course of time, those blisters become calluses. And Jesus is saying, over the course of time, by living a life of sin, by ignoring the laws of God, people's hearts become calloused and hard. This is why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Do you ever hear people say, yeah, I know I need to get serious about God, and I intend to do that. But I'm young right now. I want to have a little bit of fun. I want to live it up and and eventually I'll settle down and I'll get right with God. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? Whenever somebody says something like that to me, I want to ask them the question, and what are you going to be doing between now and then? And what are they going to be doing? Sinning. And what makes you think that as you continue to live a life of sin, that it's going to be easier for you at the end of your life to embrace God than it is right now? See, if that's your attitude, what will happen is that your heart will blister initially, spiritually speaking, but eventually it will become hard and callous, and even if the gospel is preached to, it it will simply glance off. And there are some people's lives, unfortunately, that are like that. And Jesus is asking the question, is that your heart today? Have you been following the ways of the world, following your own desires, your own passions? Say, I realize there's a God, and I'll get serious about him someday. But your heart every single day gets more and more callous, so that when the word is finally preached, it simply glances off. Some people's hearts, he says, are like that. He said, Other seed fell on shallow soil. On shallow soil. And it sprung up quickly, but it didn't have much root. I grew up in Pennsylvania, as most of you know, near Pittsburgh. And back in the 1970s and the '80s, there was a famous serial killer that went through Pennsylvania, killed a couple in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. He was finally executed in 2013. His name was Joseph Paul Franklin. And I remember reading a biography of Joseph Paul Franklin in the newspaper. They were talking about how he was about to be executed. And it was interesting to read the story of his life. It talked about the fact that he had grown up in a broken home, he had difficulty. But eventually, he fell in with the um, white supremacist movement, and then he got in with the KKK. And at one point, it said he became an evangelical Christian. And then it went on. He was in different organizations. He was in organized crime and all of these things. And the part that stood out to me was evangelical Christian. Uh, That's not what you generally lump together with all of these other organizations. And I thought to myself, there's a perfect example of the shallow heart The seed landed. It appeared to be something exciting. There appeared to be a change, but there wasn't much root. And what happened? When the sun came out, when other things began to press on his life, what little life was there withered and perished. Every preacher knows people like this. They come to church and they happen to hit us on a good morning. When the preacher's really on, the music is spectacular, and life's been tough for them, and they hear a message of encouragement, and you see them, and all of a sudden, they're excited. You see, they get excited about the church. You see them every Sunday for months on end, and then all of a sudden, one Sunday, you don't see them, and then you see them again the next Sunday. Of course, you've got to be careful around St. Philip's. Everybody's got a house in the mountains, so you can't automatically assume, but... You see some people, they, they'll be there again for the next two weeks, and then they're gone for a month. And then they're back for a Sunday, and then all of a sudden you don't see them for six months, and you run into them on the street, and they say, oh, I know I need to get back, but I've got to tell you, so many things have been happening in my life that I just, uh, I know I need to get back to church. And you recognize you're never going to see them again because their hearts are shallow. There's not much root. There's not much depth there. When difficulty or persecution or unhappiness comes their way, they give up on God. Jesus says some of the seed fell on good soil, and it sprung up. But unfortunately, the area was infested with weeds and with thistles, and it strangled out the life of the seed. This is very important for us living in 21st century America. You know, Jesus talks about money and wealth more than anything else that he talks about in the New Testament. On one occasion, he said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You and I, my friends, are strangled. The spiritual life that has the potential to take root in us is oftentimes strangled by the things of this world. I'll give you an example. My daughter. Is a stuffed animal junkie. That's what her bedroom looks like when she was a little girl. And she would often say to me, Daddy, I want you to sleep with me tonight. And I'd say, Honey, I can't fit on your bed. Because her bed looked like that. Just stuffed animal. Every place we went. She'd get a new stuffed animal. Hundreds of them. And she said, Daddy, I want you to sleep with me tonight. And I said, Honey, I can't. And she said, Why? I said, Because there's no room for me. If I'm getting in, something else has to get out. Well, let me tell you something that's the picture of our lives as Americans. If Jesus Christ is going to be in your heart, let me tell you, He wants to be at the heart of it he wants to be in the center of it he wants to be first and in many of our lives there is no room in our hearts because there are all these other things and Jesus is saying to us if something else doesn't go I can't come in now if you're wondering if that's true in your own life just go back and look over your monthly expenses See where you've spent the greater part of your money. See how the things that we do, that we enjoy doing, that are not necessarily bad in themselves, compare to what we do in terms of our contributions to God. And you'll discover that it is very, very revealing. We talk about tithing. We talk about tithing, 10%. And then people will come and say, was well, that before taxes or after taxes? Let me ask you a question. When you go to a restaurant, when you go to a restaurant and get a good meal and good service, you leave a tip. How much do you leave? 20%? So if you're giving God 10%, ask yourself, am I even tipping the Lord? Oh, boy, that, that you see, what, what you just heard is called nervous laughter. And I'm not standing here in judgment of you. But we have strangled hearts, don't we? All these things that we are so concerned about that consume us and strangle out what has the potential to be life for the kingdom of God. final type of heart, the open and receptive heart. If you take Jesus' parable seriously, only a quarter of the time, only a quarter of the time, does the seed fall on fertile soil and produce fruit. Sometimes 100, sometimes 60, sometimes 30 fold, but it produces fruit. My friend, the only way that you can know for sure, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, if your heart is right with the Lord, is if you are bearing fruit. That's the only way you can tell if the seed has taken root. If it begins to grow and it actually bears fruit. Jesus talks about this over and over again. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you will know them by their fruit. Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, all those wonderful things. Is there fruit in your life? I'm not asking you if there are good works. Because remember, God is not concerned with how things look on the outside. God is concerned with how things look on the inside. He's not concerned with simply what you do. He wants to know why you're doing it. I think I told you a story on one occasion when I was living in Beaufort. It was in February. It was a freezing cold day. And I was coming across the bridge from Ladies Island on my way into church one day, and I saw a little migrant worker, and he was coming across that bridge. My car was reading 32 degrees. It was freezing, and this man was coming across in a tank top across the bridge, shivering. And I had just bought a new jacket from Abercrombie & Fitch, and I pulled over, and I took out that jacket, and I gave it to that man. And you know, the first thing that I did when I got to the office, I told somebody about it. (laughs) And I don't oftentimes hear the Lord whisper to me audibly, but I heard him loud and clear. He said, Jeff Miller, you have your reward. Because I did it that it might be seen by men. God is concerned with what's going on in my heart. I had my reward. Well how about you? Is your heart hard today? Is it a shallow heart, not much depth to your faith? And any time difficulty or persecution comes, you fall away? Is your heart a strangled heart? Oh, you're so interested in things, but you're interested in the worldly things much more than the things of God. Or is your heart receptive? And if it is receptive, ask yourself, am I bearing fruit, the kind of fruit that makes a difference, not just in the culture, but for the kingdom of God in the culture? Now, how many of you are sitting here this morning feeling a little guilty? Thinking to myself, well, I'll be honest with you, sometimes my heart's all for those things. Anybody feel that way? If that's how you're feeling this morning, I want you to understand something. God is in the business of heart transplants. That's what He does. In Ezekiel, the prophet begs. He cries out. He said, Lord, take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. And if you pray that prayer, and you mean it, and you desire it, God will take away your hard, strangled heart, whatever it is, and give you a heart of flesh to love him, to follow hard after him, and you will begin to produce fruit. Now you may have that heart right now, and you are not producing much fruit. Notice Jesus said some will be a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. As long as you're producing fruit, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. As long as it's fruit, not that it's pleasing in the eyes of man, but for the kingdom of God, you are a citizen. What's God going to do with you? He's going to prune you. He's going to prune you so that you produce more fruit. I will be the first one to admit that one of the spiritual gifts I lack is patience. And I never ask for it because I know God's recipe for getting it. Some of that is what we're going through right now. But what God wants is to take away our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh to love him, to follow hard after him, and produce fruit for the kingdom of God. How's your heart today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the parables and for this parable that is so simple, but by no means simplistic, it's profound and it speaks to our hearts. O Lord, give us new hearts. Jesus' name.